Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year and welcome to the Friends in Fiction show. It's time to meet our first author guest of 2024. So let's get rolling. I'm Ron Block. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. And this is the Friends in Fiction show. Four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. On this week's show, we are thrilled to welcome New York Times bestselling author Grady Hendrix to talk about his latest campy and darkly comic gothic thriller, How to Sell a Haunted House, which explores how our past and our family can haunt us like nothing else. It's just out in a new trade paperback edition, and we can't wait to discuss it with him. Yeah, I should tell you, too, that I'm sort of hoarse um, <coughs> because I took up smoking cigarillos over Christmas break. So um, first, just a quick reminder to check out all the fun things going on in our Friends in Fiction community at friendsinfiction.com. There you'll find our show schedule, details on any incoming in-person events, links to our bookshop.org page, to the Friends in Fiction official book club, with Brenda and Lisa, to our merch store and book subscription box, and to our weekly email newsletter sign up. In other words, if you want to know more about anything Friends and Fiction, um, be sure to check out friendsandfiction.com. Right on, right on. Okay, let's dive right in and get to our incredible guest. New York Times bestselling author Grady Hendrix makes up lies and sells them to people. <laughs> His novels include horror store about a haunted Ikea in Cleveland, no less, My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is basically Beaches meets The Exorcist, and We Sold Our Souls, a heavy metal horror epic. He's also the author of Paperbacks from Hell, an award-winning history of the horror paperback boom of the 70s and 80s. He wrote the screenplay for Mohawk, a horror flick about the War of 1812, and Satanic Panic about a pizza delivery woman fighting rich Satanists, which you know you just want to Pick that up. Like his fan favorite best-selling novels, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires and The Final Girl Support Group, How to Sell a Haunted House is classic Grady Hendrix, equal parts heartfelt and terrifying. It's a gripping new read from a horror master. When it hit in hardcover last year, it was an instant New York Times bestseller called Ingenious by the Washington Post, wildly entertaining by the New York Times, and an authentically frightening, genuinely funny reconfiguration of what a haunted house can be by Esquire. The new trade paperback edition has just landed in stores everywhere. My script says, Sean, will you bring Grady on? But I think he's already appeared here. <laughs> I am on. Oh, good. That was ominous. <laughs> Grady, thanks so much for joining us. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, so let's get started. Congratulations on the release of the paperback. The hardcover was a huge hit, becoming an yeah. New York Times bestseller. And we just shared a snippet of what it's about. But, you know, in Friends and Fiction style, 
Um, and I'm almost afraid to ask you what it's really about, but what is it really about? You know, I'm a simple guy. It's about what it says on the cover. Uh, how do you sell a haunted house? Um, it's it's about two adult siblings who hate each other and they have to get together when their parents die and sell their parents' house, which is um, unfortunately full of um, of murder puppets, which I really, I, I always I feel bad about, you know, like who wants to read about puppets? Puppets are disgusting. But there you go. It's a disgusting world we live in. So Put on your waders and slog on in. <laughs> yeah, puppets are a little creepy, but boy, yeah, they creep me out in this book. So oh, thanks, I appreciate it. Well, puppets oh, are man. always creepy, right? Like yeah. dolls and puppets. They're like, I mean, I guess mm -hmm. portraits and statues, maybe, but puppets are the only inanimate object that um, makes eye contact. You know, dolls, puppets, and then you have to wear a puppet's a doll you wear, which is even worse. Oh, God, now you're bringing back scenes from the book. <laughs> I don't ever want to hear the name Pupkin again. Just kidding. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very successfully done. But okay, okay, so it's been widely praised for its originality. We'd like to know where the initial idea for the book came from and how did it evolve from there? Well, this, you know, it's funny. I wrote this book or started writing this book during uh, lockdown and I really miss my family. And so when you write a book, I mean, you guys know, you spend about 10 or 11 months living with imaginary people. So they may as well be imaginary people you want to hang out with. And so I decided to make up a family. And if and I write horror, so it had to have a horror element. And I figured, um, you know, haunted house stories are always about families, right? Family curses, uh, dead ancestors, haunted family homes and mansions. And so I, I had to be a haunted house book. And I realized that there hadn't been a killer doll book in a really long time. Um, and there's so much fun. And everyone always says, oh, I'm so scared of dolls. Uh, but at the same time, we really go out of our way to surround ourselves with them. Like people say, oh, my God, I'm so scared of dolls. And they're, they're thinking about their grandmother's collection of like, you know, Victorian porcelain face dolls or German dolly dolls. But, you know, everyone's got those big head Funkos all over their cubicles or what we used to have as cubicles and action <laughs> figures and, you know, uh, yeah. uh, ugly dolls and uh, Furby. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And so I just thought, you know, God, we're we're sort of got doll blindness to the dolls that are all around us every day. So why not? I love it. I love it. And um, the book is like it's so much about grief in the book, though, too. And, and you named each section about the the five stages of grief. Um, and it's, right. It is a driving force, along with sibling discord. What made you want to explore those themes? Well, what fun is a family that gets along? <laughs> that's very that's true. Horrible, you know, <laughs> that's um, very true. It's funny. Everyone, I think, describes, I don't know, maybe people do now because because there are people out there who say things that, that, you know, speaking of horror, that chill me to my soul. Like my mom is my best friend. I'm like, oh, God, what? You need to get more friends. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, my mom was always quick to point out, I'm not your friend. Um, but I always feel like everyone thinks their family is more chaotic than other families and fights more than other families and is louder than other families. Although maybe some people don't think that, but then in the sort of objective analysis, families are all pretty similar. I mean, they fight, they stick together, they split apart, they come back, you know, they're kind of ever evolving organisms, new babies join, they go up, grow up to fight to uh, have bad opinions at Thanksgiving. So I, I kind of like families, but yeah, a family that gets along is no fun at all. And no grief fun. is just a natural <laughs> one for a ghost story. I mean, 
ghosts or grief. And there was a point in this book, because I'm a really bad writer, so it, I, I'm very disorganized. So there I, three, I disagree. I would disagree there. No, too, but I mean, yeah. like my process, my, my process of writing, I suspect it could be done better um, with more ease and grace. Um, I wrote three completely different versions of this book before I got to the fourth version. That's the one people wow. read. I was a journalist for us. So I write too fast probably. So, um, but it's, it, it's painful. Um, but, uh, and there were earlier versions, two earlier versions where I was really insistent that this be a COVID book taking place in January of 2021, right before vaccines and right when vaccines were coming out and people would be masked and social distancing wouldn't be the main theme of the book. But I just felt like, um, there was this huge amount of grief that everyone kind of experienced and didn't really, I still don't think of processed. I think it comes out as anger and depression and all kinds of things, but I really, it's just because I feel like horror is the return of the repressed, right? It's, it's that thing you don't want to think about that keeps coming back and, and knocking at your door. And, um, I was like, no, no. I was getting very self-righteous with my editors, my UK editor, my American. I was like, no, it has to be, you're trying to, to, to edit reality. And then by the time the book was moving along, you know, it was 2021 and, and that seems so far in the rear view mirror, it felt almost dated. So it's sort of all that stuff came <laughs> out. Um, and I think where that started from was this idea that um, a lot of us who have older parents really lost track of them during the pandemic. Like my mom had to take lockdown very seriously. She has lung disease and she lived alone. And so um, the local bookstore, Buxton Books, they would drop off a package of books for her every week. And uh, Polly, the owner, would sort of like look in the window mm -hmm. and my mom would wave and she'd text me, you know, your mom's alive. It's not like face down with a broken hip. Um, but but sort of this, I, 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 I think the first time we all saw our parents after that initial stage of lockdown, A, how did their houses get so messy outside the realm <laughs> of the Zoom screen where we saw them? And B, oh my God, they all... It looked like everyone had been on a desert island for, for a few years, you know? Yeah. I mean, I probably didn't look any better. So, but that just came out of the book. But, and, and that's too bad because I do think there's a big chunk of that. I was just reading someone's COVID diary and I was like, man, there's so much of this I had forgotten already. Yeah. That's true. People remind the conversations remind you of a, a lot of that stuff that went on. We went, did we really go through that? We did. Yeah, exactly. And so, like I said, ghosts are a natural for grief. They go hand in hand. Yeah, the book was definitely a terrific treat. So much going on. Where did those characters come from and how did you develop them? Um, I was interested in especially the dynamic between um, the sister and um, um, Mark and... Um, Louise. Louise, I'm sorry. Yeah. Lulu, yeah. How dare you forget the Lulu. name of a character Listen, in I my just, book. I just, <laughs> I just finished it last night, too. That's, that's shameful. Um, I love that. I forget the names. I love all the that dynamic because oh, thanks. Um, it was so real. It was so oh, real. Yeah. Thank you. No, well, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, I usually, my main characters are usually women for some reason. And so Mark was my first chance to really write a dude. I mean, it's a brand of dude I love and I associate him with the South, but I'm sure you find them all over with different, different variations and modifications. But to me, it's that 
big, loud, sloppy Southern guy who is a lot of fun. He kind of half-asses everything. He's a blast. But on day three, he's getting he's wearing his welcome fin, you know, just way overconfident in his limited abilities, which might describe a lot of men. Um, and uh, and then, you know, you just pair that with sort of uh, an older sister type. I, I've got an older sister. I mean, a lot of people do. Um, but where, you know, everyone you were expected as an oldest sibling to always be on point. You know, you had to have your bed made up. Everything had to be perfect. Right. And and then you see a younger sibling and you're like, wait, what are you getting away with? Uh, that was very much the dynamic in my family. I have three older sisters and then I'm much younger and I'm the only boy. And so, God, I'm like, I'm like the God King. You know, I can do no wrong. I'm, one of my sisters forgets to like, you know, doesn't get her hair cut. And my mom is like, hmm. I, I could, you know, who drive my car through their front porch and they'd be like, oh, great, he's here. Yeah, um, he's so, yeah so amping that up was was fun. It's a, it's a dynamic I'm very familiar with. That's awesome. <laughs> Why puppets, Grady? I mean, A, puppets are horrifying, but B, I was a puppeteer for a long time and um, Mark's experience is very, at BU is very similar to mine. Um, I was part of a radical puppet collective who were great. Uh, they were a lot of fun, and we really did do a show like that uh, at an elementary school. Although our show, it was pre nine eleven, so it was based on the um, the Pinochet regime in in, in Chile, and <laughs> um, and and so we were there doing doing a show about the torture and disappearance of of farmers and things to these fourth graders, um, which which I'm sure you know it changed their lives, and I'm sure they're all very um, involved and invested in South American affairs these days. Um, but yeah, it was a blast though. Uh, and, and I really loved it. We made big puppets that you had to wear and you wore on stilts and it was so much fun. And it was also, um, really the closest thing, probably the closest thing to being possessed you can be without, you know, finding a cursed, um, you know, forgotten, uh, you know, church and, and inviting demons into your soul. Like it's the closest thing you get because you put on a mask or a puppet that you wear and, um, you really do. I mean, you, it tells you what to do. It, it, you really find it, it gets very confusing the line between what the mask or the puppet wants you to do and what you want to do. I mean, anyone can do this, you know, put a sock on your hand and draw a face on it and start moving it around. And I bet you within a few minutes, you're talking to it and it's saying things that are unexpected and it's got its own voice. And it's kind of like, and, and that's the moment where you have to take out that sort of like rational knife and and carve into like you know where's the will originating from here me or the puppet you know it's very easy to get lost in that i mean there's a lot of, of religions that use trance states and mask work to uh and even puppet work to um to sort of enter these ecstatic moments and um and it's interesting to me that a lot of sort of repressive governments. I mean, in, when Russia was sort of tightening the screws in the late 19th century, in Germany, uh, China, when it became a communist country, they got rid of really popular peasant puppet shows because they felt like they were too anarchic. They were too, um, they unleashed these sort of forces of social anarchy and you know, drinking and fornication and violence and bad language. And, you know, they were regarded as, you know, we can't control these puppets. So, uh, you know, it's the Punch and Judy show. Puppets have always like, there's not a problem a puppet has ever seen that it doesn't think it can solve by hitting it on the head with a stick. <laughs> and if that Punch doesn't solve Judy, the problem, yeah. they get a bigger stick. <laughs> you know, I meant to tell you uh, before we started, when I was in college, my 
I had a very, um, a very churchy college roommate and her high school boyfriend broke up with her uh, for a girl who had a Christian puppet ministry. So um, um, Nancy's yeah, Christian puppet ministry really struck a chord with me. <laughs> yeah, they're actually really super popular. I've got a friend whose mom had a puppet ministry, and I found out one of my cousins has a puppet ministry, which I had no idea about until the book came out. So I was very nervous about her reaction, but she liked it. Uh, but yeah, they're they're a very common thing because, you know, it's weird. Um, I think people get very concerned about delivering messages to kids. And so they decide that the pill will go down sweeter with a puppet. And I'm always thinking, you fool, what have you done? <laughs> what did this child do to hurt you that you're exposing them to a puppet? Well, so that talks about some of your um, puppet research. Um, but what what are some of the other things? I like um, like how do you how do you make it so scary? I think about my past where I see these those you were describing the the things at school, the show that the puppet show they put on, and I've I've been to things like that, and they're horrifying. How do you how do you pull that essence out of the writing? You know, you just sort of keep your eye out. Like my mom has to get these injections in her eyeball every six weeks. Um, and so immediately I'm like, well, I'm using that. Um, yeah. <laughs> oftentimes when I'm doing a signing, I'm a very, very slow book signer and I can't talk while I'm signing or I write down what I'm saying. So I'll often ask people to, to tell me a ghost story or if they've ever lived in a haunted house or seen a ghost or something. Man, I, I tell lots of, I'm, I'm stealing that. Um, and you know, and I, and I do, so there's tons of stuff I get from there and really it's the problem with telling, telling a ghost story is a good way to scare someone because it's always mm -hmm. boiled down to the essence, right? That sort of campfire tale, it gets boiled down to just what you need. You don't get hung up on stuff like the weather unless it matters or what people were wearing or anything. It gets it down to like the pure essence of the mechanics of how to make right. that scare work. But the problem with the campfire version, the oral version, is it often takes shortcuts. Like, you know, he had a hideous face. And you're like, well, what does hideous look like? Like, you know, there's somewhere between the world's ugliest dog and something genuinely unsettling. And that's right. that we want to be somewhere in there. So that requires a lot of kind of unpacking those words. But, but really, to me, I find telling it out loud to myself and sort of that boils it down to the essence, you know, the nuts and bolts of what needs to be in there. And then you add just enough meat to it to make it kind of, to make it sing, to make it specific. Now, I really have to ask how you researched, how do you exercise uh, a puppet as, oh. um, as aunt, uh, as the aunt and her friend Barb did? Oh yeah. Barbara and Aunt Gail. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I did, uh, when I did my best friend's exorcism, which was a book, my second novel about um, two teenage girls in the eighties who during the satanic panic, they believe one of them's possessed. Man, I immersed myself and sort of it's not so much the exorcism tradition, even though I call them exorcisms because I'm really lazy. Um, but that sort of Christian deliverance ministry thing, which is the Protestant version of exorcism. Right. Um, and that's something I've always kept kind of an eye on. And so I read stuff when it comes out about it. I sort of every now and then will watch a YouTube video of a, of a what they call a puke and rebuke at a, at a church when they <laughs> upload. They very rarely upload them, but sort of these mass deliverances where people in the congregation, lots of them get the spirits out of them. So that stuff's all in there. And, and you know, it's it's really interesting. Um, I'm always very jealous of people who manage to live in a supernatural world. 
But, you know, there's a lot of people out there who feel like there is a spiritual warfare going on between good and evil right now under their nose. And it's happening as they drive to Walmart or Applebee's or the movies or wherever. And so I really enjoy that dichotomy. So I'm always sort of reading up on that stuff when I come across it and things. So at this point, uh, you know, instead of my head being full of useful things like conjugating Spanish verbs or, you know, <laughs> how to treat someone for shock and trauma, uh, it's full of things like um, deliverance ministry, exorcism, prayers and things like that. Now I'm Googling puke and rebuke over here. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So one of the things that I, I thought was so cool about the book and, and it added to the terror was the setup of the house and um, with the, with all the action that happened in there. Did you have a model of the house in your mind so you could get oh, yeah. it just right the way you did? Oh, 100%. It's my aunt's house. Um, I, you know, again, it's like you're going to spend a lot of time someplace. And I really liked my aunt's house. It was just a you know, one story brick rancher is like half a mile from where I grew up. And, but that's where we had most of our family events like Thanksgivings and a lot of Christmases and things. So I always liked it. It was always just sort of a really comfortable, lived in friendly house. Um, and so I, uh, def I did that and that's just, I want to hang out at my aunt's house. So. <laughs> wow. Did you sell the house? It's, it's on Mount, is it on Mount Pleasant? It's in Mount Pleasant. Yeah. yeah. I, yes, it has been sold. My aunt passed away a couple of years ago. Wow. The family kept it for a little while, but, but wound up selling it. Yeah. I think they did okay. And, oh, it, and they sold it before the book came out. And anyone oh, good. Could make an good. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. You know, there well, are... it is weird because you look at, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I was going to say, you just look at, you know, what's called stigmatized properties, like places that are reported to have um, a murder usually drives the value of a house down a little below market, but a haunting can go either way. Like, um, the know. house from, yeah, the house from the conjuring films, uh, that stays on that went for a pretty fair price recently. Amityville horror house though. Um, uh, oh gosh, I used to know the address. Uh, but anyway, 210, 210 ocean Avenue, I think. Um, but it like is way below market right now. And the big, and, and a lot of states do it differently in terms of disclosure. Like some, there was a famous court case in New York where you have to disclose now in New York State if a house has a reputation of being haunted. The reason being not, oh no, I bought a house infested with spirits, but the Amityville problem, which is you've got tourists coming on there all the time and trying to steal dirt from the yard and taking pictures. And you just want to sit on your front porch and get drunk, you know, on a Friday <laughs> night. And you, you don't want people taking pictures. No. Um so exactly. So yeah. So that's uh, that's that's sort of the less glamorous part. But yeah, it can go either way, but often drives it down a little bit because of tourism. You know, there are a lot of really emotional scenes in this book. Definitely. Um, and I was thinking about I was thinking about um, the grieving process for the parents. You know, she tells herself, um, Louise tells herself that she has no problem with her mother, that there were no issues. And then Mark is the one ha who has to say, are you kidding me? Right. Yeah. So, um, and then you make us, uh, you really are a puppeteer because you make me feel compassion for Pupkin. How did that happen? Oh, yeah. Well, Pupkin's not bad. He's just misunderstood. Like, you know, I, I don't want to get into any spoiler territory, but, you know, the bad guy's always got to have a reason. You know, and and like when I did my best friend's exorcism, it was really hard because what possible 
reasoning does a demon have? You know, like a demon from hell, like what's the backs? What's the tragic backstory? They're like, I was a much milder demon. And then, you know, I got run over by a, a mail truck and now I possess mailmen. Like it, it, that was really, really difficult. Um, with Pupkin, it was really easy. A puppet has this really childlike spirit. And as much as people say things like your inner child and a childlike spirit in a good way, I don't know, man, if you've been around children, they are feral, <laughs> uncivilized animals until they're a certain age. And you kind of think about an unleashed kid where there are never any consequences and they're always indulged. And man, you've got a spiteful little beast there. My friend Karen Slaughter always says, kids, no, kids are sticky and selfish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we socialize them, you know, into, into acceptability. And then, and then we right. have to sort of use, you know, shame to keep them in line. Uh, but yeah, it's hard. Um, so yeah, so I always feel like um, like the bad guy's got to be a compelling bad guy. Um, but, you know, the thing with Louise and her mom I think we all flatter ourselves that we have good relationships with our parents, yeah. but there is always, in my experience, a conversation you wish you could have and you either don't have it because you don't want to embarrass them or you don't have it because you're pretty convinced it won't go the way it, it, you think it will, or you don't have it because you don't want to show that kind of naked neediness <laughs> to someone else. Um, but there's always something, you know, there's always, I might say, always something unsaid. Um, you know, I, I think death is one of those things we really, we don't talk about enough in, in sort of straightforward ways. And so everyone thinks their way of dealing with death is weird and personal, man, we all deal with it. It's just sticky human stuff, you know? Yep. And there's a lot of that going on in the book and all kinds of, uh, instances of it eating better is something we want to be convenient and easy with factors delicious ready-to-eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes i'm looking forward to over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto what are you waiting for let's get started today and get after our goals Fuel up fast with Factors restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prep, no mess. With Factor, there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Sign up and save. They've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout. Join us and head to factormeals.com slash fiction50 and use code FICTION50 to get 50% off. That's code FICTION50 at factormeals.com slash FICTION50 to get 50% off. I'm food journalist Mary Beth Albright, and I study how food affects emotions and how emotions affect our food choices. It's cutting-edge science I brought to my readers at The Washington Post and National Geographic, and now it's coming to you every week in my new podcast, Eat, you'll feel better. All about how food affects emotions and how your emotions affect what you eat. Eat, you'll feel better turns decades of research into one practical, actionable thing you can do every week to enhance your food mood connection. I've dug deep into big questions like, does intergenerational trauma affect our food choices? 
are ultra-processed foods affecting my emotions? And the seemingly small questions like, why do holiday cookies just taste better? We'll hear from chefs and researchers and food developers and flavorists about the food mood connection. A new episode lands every Wednesday, the first one on November 15th, just in time for that food and mental health marathon known as the holidays. Eat. You'll feel better. Get it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Um, so one of the things that I love about your writing is that you take, you know, when you think about old horror things, you think of like creepy castles or thunderstorms and things, but you kind of bring it all into the here and now. So things like, you know, dolls or puppets. And one of the scariest things that I will never get rid of is a nativity scene. And, <laughs> uh, and, and even something as small as an M&M, it's just, it's a kind of a tool of evil in your story. So how do you, how do you bring that into the here and now? Yeah, well, that's just, you know, the stuff of daily life. Um, you know, a lot of the 19th century ghost story writers were women. And I think one of the reasons they were so able to corner that market is they were really familiar with domestic life looked like. They were able to wring terror out of a nightcap or a wash basin or a kitchen or a, a badly constructed flight of stairs or wallpaper. You know, I don't know many male authors in the 19th century who spent that much time thinking about wallpaper, but ghosts <laughs> are domestic. They're in our houses already. They're waiting for us. And so I think that that women in the 19th century who were almost in a lot of ways limited to the domestic sphere, they understood it. They saw it. And what to us now looks like these sort of musty um, trappings of Victorian life were very modern to them. I mean, uh, even Charles Dickens, you know, uh, his ghost story, The Signalman. I mean, that takes place, you know, in the most modern setting possible, a railroad signal station in the 19th century. And so, you know, Stephen King got a lot of flack for that when he did it. People say, oh, he uses all these brand names as a as a cheap shortcut in his writing. Well, yeah, OK, sure. You, you could say the man, you know, he picked up the paper sack of of delicious meat patties encased in a bun but you could also say he picked up the bag of mcdonald's and everyone knows what that smells like right um and so that's just you want to bring stuff and dump it on people's laps and putting it in places they understand with with objects they're familiar with that's what you do i mean the book i'm writing right now is set in 1970 and i'm having so much trouble with it because we don't. I mean, 1970, it's far enough in the past that we don't get it anymore uh, right. in a personal way. Even if you, you know, even even if I, even when I was writing Best Friends Exorcism set in 88, when, you know, my 88, I was alive. It, it was hard to get into that mindset for me or remember it. And 70 is almost impossible. And it's and so it's just the 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 stuff is unfamiliar you know every outfit you describe sounds like a punchline every haircut every mustache and i think it was for me really difficult for the reader to understand that in 1970 if you were over 30 you thought the world was falling apart and you know and if you were under 20 you did not know most likely how sex worked or where babies came from. You just, it just was not a thing. And it's really changed this book a lot. I mean, this book was originally a first person present tense book and it was so up in people's faces and the mindset was so unfamiliar and the trappings and details were so unfamiliar 
I had to make it third person and past tense to just put that distance between the reader and the experience and have that sort of very limited authorial voice that gave a little handholding and sort of like guided, gave people a little more context. Uh, they were lost without it. So that's the very long way of saying, I'm sure in 25 to 30 years, someone will read this book and go, oh, look at all these musty old 2023, you know, environments. <laughs> who, 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 who has a cell phone like this anymore? What old yeah. people? <laughs> let's, let's talk about the horror genre in general. You know, I read a fascinating Washington Post interview with Stephen King recently, and he talked about um, what he read as a kid including some uh, Pulp Fiction Tales of the Crypt, which he said twisted him. He said his aunt was very concerned, but his mother wasn't worried about it. Were there any books that you read as a kid that you think um, inspired or tapped into your interest in horror? You know, it's funny. I, I, I get asked this, not a lot. I mean, it's, but I mean, it's a reasonable question. And I think back and I'm like, I, was, I didn't really love horror as a kid. It was one of many things I read, but I tended to gravitate towards like science fiction and like high fantasy and military stuff. Oh my God. My dad like only reads hardcover nonfiction about World War II. So if it was dudes with guns, I was all over it. And horror novels, the covers really grossed me out when I saw them in bookstores because this was during the height of the horror paperback boom. And so I was really had an aversion, but I also, you know, those Alfred Hitchcock anthologies were in every school library. And you read a, a story like, um, oh, God, Elizabeth Keys. I think that's her name. I can't quite remember. Elizabeth St. Keys, who wrote The Man Who Sold Rope to Knowles about uh, a door-to-door -door salesman of rope who winds up selling it to these underground creatures who use it to kill him. Like, you know, or, or that'll, that'll put a warping on you. Or... Totally. I think like most kids, the the prime age, if you're of my generation, defines Stephen King as, you know, when you're 12 or 13 years old, because you're reading up, you want to know what the adult world is like. And, you know, King likes like writes like a mofo and it's just, you know, compelling. You feel like you feel like you're getting a glimpse into what's behind the grown up door if you're a kid. Um, and, you know, the thing that really opened my eyes to what horror could do was um, finding a couple of copies of the mass market paperback of Clive Barker's Books of Blood in 87 or 88 in a beach house we had rented for a couple of weeks one summer. And those were very modern. They were sexual. They were, I wouldn't say violent, but explicit. You know, he really kept his eyes open. There was none of that H.P. Lovecraft the monster was indescribable. It was like, no, this is what it looked like. We'll start here and end here. Um, and there was something so unblinking about it. There were gay characters. There were uh, trans characters. There were straight characters. And there were black characters. And it just felt so much like the real world all of a sudden. Um, and then I really didn't read a lot of horror uh, in con and really only came back to it as an adult. Um you know, so yeah, it, it's weird. I'm sure some of that stuff was in the mix, but I mean, geez, you look at fairy tales like wolves and guts getting ripped out and people getting grandmothers getting eaten. It's like you all kind of grow up on a diet of horror to some extent. <laughs> well, <laughs> what true. creeps you out, Grady? What drives you to write in that arena? 
What? Oh, well, the reason I write horror is is pretty straightforward. Like, I, I've got a relatively limited imagination in the sense that, like, I like to write about the world around me. Um, I, I'm not good at secondary world stuff, like creating a world like you would for a fantasy novel or setting something in the future. That's just not that's not a that's not a comfortable fit for me. I've written some sci-fi. I've written some fantasy. It doesn't it feels like I'm wearing someone else's clothes. I really like writing about the world around me, the the here and now. And I mean, 1970 notwithstanding. And I like I like taking out the boring parts. And so, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm either writing mysteries, thrillers, or horror at that point, or or romance, I guess, or erotica perhaps. Um, and the thing I like about horror is that you can you can really literalize things. You know, you can you can say, gosh, when vampires are sitting around, like is there something, you know, and, and they become a bit of a, a punchline, you know, sparkle vampires with good abs and all that. But you're like, what is it about it that really scared us about them? Why are they so sticky? Um, and so that's kind of what I make my living doing. I, I wander around and I look at old toys people have forgotten. And I'm like, well, if I dust this off and clean it out and give it some sharper teeth, like maybe you've got something here. Maybe you do. Okay. So um, I want to, we want to talk about your career a little bit. I, I, um, it was, I think, last February. I was in New York, and I went to this little restaurant called Dirt Candy. Oh, yes. And I real I realized that there was the the first graphic novel cookbook had your name on it. Yes. So, um, but just talk a little bit about um, maybe that book, but also like your path to publication. Yeah. Well, I was a journalist for a really long time, like ten years, freelance cultural coverage. I hate even calling it journalism. I was doing interviews with directors and book reviews and movie reviews and things um and uh you used to be able to make a really good money living doing that um and then 2008 came and everything crashed and everyone fired their staff and stopped hiring freelancers so much and just beat their in-house staff harder to work longer hours um and that's when i sort of buckled down to fiction but um i wrote a whatever came my way my wife is the chef and the owner of dirt candy so when she wanted to do she got an offer to do a cookbook and we were like eh, does the world really need another book with pretty pictures of vegetables and recipes next to it yeah. and then we were like oh we were having a fight one day and we're like i can't remember which one of they said it uh, said it but was like you know the only reason to actually do this is if we do something really stupid like a comic book cookbook like oh that's a good idea um and I, I co-wrote some YA with a friend of mine who who'd gotten a gig writing some YA and, and was having she was pregnant at the time and was just like I, I'd rather be doing this with a friend. And I wrote any I wrote television listings in the Direct TV satellite guide. Uh, I wrote anything, captioned photos. I was a photo editor. Um, and uh, and then when all these jobs started going away in 08, I was like, well, I have one skill which is typing quickly. Uh, so I went to Clarion Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Workshop out of uh, UC San Diego, and that was really an accelerator. That was sort of like going from driving around in your neighborhood in a go-kart to getting onto the Autobahn. And I realized really quickly, because I think a lot of writers, I certainly was, we have to we pretend not to be super serious about it. We're like, oh, yeah, I'm working on this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's change this. It's just very self-deprecating, kind of like we're protecting ourselves, I guess, from shame. Before, you know, I think when you start doing this professionally, you're like, shame is my co-pilot. Uh, but um, and so 
I was really kind of that guy. And, and I got into the workshop and uh, by a really, what I discovered later from talking to some of the teachers, a really thin margin, I got into the workshop. And I suddenly realized these other 24, 26 people there were really serious about this. And most of them were younger than me. And I was like, oh, crap. And I realized I had to step up my game or I was going to be the asshole, like who was acting not serious when everyone else was. And that was like an incredible six weeks. I mean, it really, really was. And um, and I came out of there and, and it took me a few years after that, you know, still freelancing, trying to make ends meet. There were some really stony, poor years in there, um, but just writing all the time. And a friend of mine who was uh, an editor was looking to move jobs. And she was actually a friend of mine, uh, the girlfriend of a friend of mine from Clarion. And she was editing with uh, Jason Rakulik, who was the editor at Quirk down in Philly, which is a small press. And he was like, oh, what are some writers you'd want to bring over? And she's like, oh, this guy, Grady's just written some short stuff. And so he didn't hire her, um, his loss. But he called and asked if I had anything and I had like you know, three unpublished novels in my my hard drive. So I cleaned one up and sent it to him and he hated it. But he liked my writing style enough. And he was like, so we started talking and out of that came horror store. Um, and after that, it's just a lot of work <laughs> in, a, in a good way. I mean, I really like my job, but I, I really at Clarion really learned if you're going to do this, take it seriously. You know, um, this isn't a vacation and it's hard to figure out what kind of writer you are. You know, I, yeah. I, I look at, someone like Paul Tremblay and I'm like, man, I, mm. he does all this stuff with structure and all these things. I'm like, I wish I could do that. Or I look at someone like Shirley Jackson with those very precise sentences that are just so finely tuned or, or, or even like Alan Moore and the stuff he can do with like having pictures in there as well. And you're like, God, I want to do all of that. But you soon, you know, through trial and error, if you're paying attention, realize the kind of writer you are. And I really realize that for me, I'm very much a, um, a pane of glass writer where like I want to be I want the writing to be as invisible as a pane of glass between the reader and the story. You know, I want them as invested in the story as possible and not noticing any writerly stuff I'm doing. Um, so, yeah, so that's 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 the lurid, the lurid and somewhat tedious story of how I wound up sitting here that's talking to you guys. So interesting, though. Everybody has a different path to their, to their goals. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's one of those things I always, I remember how hungry I was for reading interviews with authors and success stories and how people broke in and stuff when I was trying to do it. But then once you do it, you're like, I can't remember who it was who said this. It might've been like Neil Gaiman or someone, but was like, everyone's is different because as soon as you get in the castle one way, they brick up that window and like burn the ladder and you've got to find another way. Um, and so it's, you know, the, the one thing someone said, and unfortunately I think it was Quentin Tarantino, but was like, a lot of it depends on who you surround yourself with. Like, if you want to be writing, you should be around writers, uh, you know, and like, like if you want to be making movies, you should be around filmmakers. You know, if you want to be making music, you should be around musicians. And that's actually the one thing I think is kind of eternal, like, you know, get around the other people doing what you're doing as much as you can. That right. helps. Yeah. We always talk on friends and fiction about finding your tribe. Yeah. And there's a bunch of us, uh, Almakatsu, like Stephen Graham Jones, Victor Laval, uh, Paul Tremblay, 
who all sort of started publishing our first stuff around 2014, uh, right in there. And there wasn't a horror market there. Um, I remember that was a time when Barnes and Noble had taken out the horror section in most of their stores. It's back now, but it was gone until like three or four years ago. Um, it was all stuck at the end of science fiction and fantasy, you know, a bunch of walking dead graphic novels and Stephen King and Dean Coots. Um, and like, there just wasn't anything then. And we all sort of, that's when we all sort of were able to like wriggle in the, the rat holes. <laughs> <laughs> I love how your even yeah. your, even your sentences have, uh, references to horror. <laughs> yes. Yes, um, you know, Grady, you've been quite involved in writing for the screen. You'd had a success in adaptations most recently from my best friend's exorcism now on Amazon prime and several other screenplays and, and stuff like that. Um, how did that happen? I, a friend of mine, uh, I always like movies and, and screenplays and everything. I, I used to want to direct until I realized like how much work that was um, and how much of that work was logistical. You know, like, like I was a, I wanted to be a theater director in university. And I was like, most of what I'm doing here is making people show up on time for rehearsal and memorizing <laughs> their lines. Like, you know, writing something you can do without anyone else. And um, uh, so I always had an interest. And then a friend of mine, Nick Rucka and I started writing a ton together uh trying to break in and there's nothing like the only way to learn how to write a screenplay is write a lot of screenplays and send them out and get feedback and the only way to learn how to write a book is to write books send them out get feedback you know try again uh fail better and um so i started doing that and eventually just bit by bit i was able to sort of worm my way in um i've written some low budget horror movies that have been produced and some big budget horror movies that haven't um and, uh, you know, you just keep going. And it's interesting because I find screenplays, screenwriting is such a rigorous format. Uh, and writing a novel is not. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's not as rigorous. Screenplay, the word count is so tight. And there's so many requirements and expectations in your readers, like, who are usually development execs. And so writing books has not made me a very good screenplay writer. But writing screenplays is really up my game in terms of books. It forces you to be precise and to not waste time and to really get at the meat of a scene. Um, you know, in a screenplay, you can't write something that you can't show. Everything has to be external. But in a book, it's all internal. I mean, even if it's just the point of view of a character, yeah. you're inside someone's head mostly. Um, so it's a very, very different thing, uh, the two of them, but I love doing it. You know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's really fun. It's a, it's kind of like doing like Wordle, you know, it's like this really fun challenge to try to figure out sure. and then cheat on <laughs> Google for the hint of the day That's right. and then erase your browser history. So your wife doesn't know you do that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned a little bit about your next book, but I had read somewhere that it was set in Florida. Yes, I'm right. It's called uh, Witchcraft for Wayward Girls, and it's about um, a home for unwed mothers in 1970 in uh, St. Augustine, Florida. And um, because I was like, I figured, you know, I've written about Charleston. I actually have written about Savannah before. I was like, what? I didn't want to do that again. I was like, what's another very old tourist city on the east southeastern seaboard within driving distance of each other? I'll challenge myself. St. Augustine. Um, and it's it's been a bear this book i mean the time period stuff 
Uh, I am a middle-aged childless man, and I'm writing a book where every single character is pregnant. Um, you know, the amount of, of interviews I've done with OBs and midwives and uh, labor and delivery nurses and moms has been daunting. And, um, and then witchcraft on top of that, which is really hard because if you call a book How to Sell a Haunted House... People are like, how to sell a haunted house. Oh, yeah, okay, I get it. If you're yeah. like, the Southern Book Club's guide to slaying vampires, I go, slaying vampires. If you write witchcraft in it, people are like, oh, is this a nonfiction? Because everyone believes in witches. Oh, there is still yeah. a very active, you know, witch community out there. And there's a lot of different kinds of witches. And, you know, and it's, it's like, I don't want to piss anyone off. So I had to invent sort of my own kind of brand of it. So I wouldn't, you know, like really misrepresent a tradition. And so it's been, this book has just been a beast. And it's one of the few times where I've really had to figure it out on the fly. Like usually I've got the book pretty refined as I go. And then I mess it up. This time I'm messing it up and refining it as I go. And um, it's it's been pretty brutal, to be honest. I've, I, I've, I'm realizing that I have to do three drafts of a book to get anywhere. And um, that doesn't, change the fact because i'm very i'm very dense uh but then i'm like no 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 but this second draft is really good and my editor's like no it's not like, God <laughs> damn it thought i was getting more efficient at this you know i'm getting worse it's taking me longer um so it's been it's been a beast to wrestle with and you know the thing that's really a bummer about this book if for me is that it's going to come out in the fall, in, I think August or fall of 2024 this year. So it's coming a book about a home from wed mothers coming out a couple of weeks before an election that is going to largely revolve oh. around Roe. I'm just like, oh boy, I, I just, I just wanted to tell a story. I didn't want to make a statement. <laughs> and it's set in so. Florida. Yeah, it's set in Florida. Florida. Exactly. Right, right. Oh, geez, I didn't even think of that. I am an idiot. Happy to help out. <laughs> so yeah so and it's funny you know people will sometimes ask oh what statement did you want to make with this book what were you trying to say and i'm like i'm not anything i'm trying to say i want to tell a story you yeah. know i just want to tell a story about people and unfortunately you know when you talk about people unless you want to be vague and abstract and have a team called the peoples uh <laughs> you know and the mascot is an anonymous generic person People are caught, you know, people have class and race and genders and all kinds of stuff. And and if you're not talking about that stuff, then you're not writing about the world I recognize. Yeah, yeah. But I'm going to back up a little bit. You, you know, you touched on the fact that you've set, you've set three books in Charleston now. And I guess you said um, one set partly in Savannah. Um, is the low country inherently creepy? I don't know if I'd say it's inherently creepy, but I do think that, um, and this is such a grotesque generalization, but I like to make those, um, Southerners are storytellers yeah. and the way mm -hmm. they make sense of things is to turn it into a story, or at least that's what I've noticed in my family yeah. and among my sort of extended family and friends, you know, you want to talk about, you know, a relative who's kind of weird and messed up, you tell a story about them, you know, and, and how they fit into the family. And you find that story that sort of tells you everything you need to know about them. Um, you know, and so, um, 
and and so I've always found that Southerners are just the story is is everything, um, and nothing is so unforgivable if as long as it makes a good story, at least in my family. And so I think that natural tendency to turn things into stories uh, is really soaked into the soaked into the dirt down there, or the clay. Or the clay. Or the Whatever. sand. Or the sand. Exactly. Or the pluff mud. Oh, yeah. The pluff mud. mud. Yeah. Um, and I also find that, you know, it's interesting. Like when I did Southern Book Club, um, a lot of people wanted to option that for a movie or a TV show because they were like, oh, we don't see a lot of books about, you know, middle-aged women in the South. Like, A, you're not reading the same books I am. Uh, <laughs> right. but, but B... They, it seemed like such a novel, bizarre thing to them. And I'm like, this is this is most of the country, middle-aged people <laughs> living not in New York or L.A. Like, this is this is a lot of America. You guys should definitely get out more. Definitely. A lot of the people that buy the books, too. Yeah, exactly. Well, anyway, we could do this for days. But um, we're gonna at this point, we're going to thank you, Grady, for being with us on the Friends in Fiction show. But before we let you go, let uh, tell everybody where they can find you on the road and online in the coming weeks. Sure. Well, I'm not doing a lot of events right now. I usually do a show instead of a um, of a author event. The next one I'm doing uh, is going to be a while down the road. But if you just go to GradyHendricks.com, it's got dates for everything that's coming up. I'll be doing a ton of them in the fall uh, to promote the new book, Witchcraft for Wayward Girls. And it has links to all my social media nonsense. So if you want to find me or you want to learn how to avoid me, GradyHendricks.com. Great. And now for all of you watching and listening, now that you've had the pleasure of meeting Grady, we encourage you to rush out and buy your copy of How to Sell a Haunted House. Um, it's really a it's really a step-by-step -step guide um <laughs> if you have a haunted property in your life this is this, this is, is the, the best. one this is the book you need i actually love the additional material they put in the paperback at it's the, so much end. fun oh my god yes. yeah i hate wasted pages so they're like well we do have about eight pages that we're going to sort of put some ads i'm like no 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 let me write something <laughs> yeah. uh the perfect place to get your copy of how to sell a haunted house is a friends and fiction shop on bookshop.org You'll be getting a discount and helping to fund our show and also supporting indie booksellers like the ones that have been so great to Grady and me and all the other folks on Friends in Fiction. Thank you all so much for having me. I could, like you said, I could, I could go on talking. Great. And we could go on listening. Thank you so much for joining us and, and good luck with the paperback release. Oh, thanks, y'all. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.